0: The man of screen
1: Faster than a speeding bullet More powerful than a locomotive Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound Superman. by man Yes, Superman! Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman! Who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 152 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode I'm going to go back to my coverage of the Ruby Spears Superman show with the Superman story, The Big Scoop, and the Kent family album story, Overnight with the Scouts. And then in the second segment, I'm going to have the Superman story, Triple Play, and the Kent family album, The Circus. And uh, like I said, this is going to uh, continue until the end of the Ruby Spears uh, Superman Like I mentioned in a previous episode, coverage between Ruby Spears, Superman, and Superboy is going to pretty much alternate until I run out of Ruby Spears episodes. This is, I believe, episodes 5 and 6 of Ruby Spears, so there will be 4 more episodes of Ruby Spears alternating with Superboy, and then after that, it will be all Superboy all the time. So before I get into the business of this week's episode, I have feedback to address, uh, several items of feedback, actually. The uh, first of which is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on of Screen, episode 141, and Dave writes Greetings, Mike. I agree that the two part Darkseid's Golden Trap was the best story of this lot, but I enjoyed the other two as well. For me, it's hard to go wrong with dinosaurs, which were a frequent story driver in my Silver Age childhood, and although Mixy S sometimes gets boring, when Red Kryptonite is included, it brings the story up a little, in my estimation. With the Gold Kryptonite Trap and Darkseid's Golden Trap, I was reminded of an opinion I had even as a youngster, that Superman seemed more afraid of Gold Kryptonite than of Green Kryptonite, suggesting to me that he hated the thought of being a powerless, ordinary human than of being dead, as if not being Superman was a worse fate than death. Also, he used the phrase, a fate worse than death, in mentioning that, for Wonder Woman, being married to Darkseid would be such a fate. I had to laugh a bit when he said that because... That expression was, back in 19th and early 20th century literature, a euphemism, especially when discussing a woman's situation for rape, which is kind of what a fourth marriage to Darkseid would be. The expression became broader over time to mean just a really terrible fate. The Island of the Dinosaurs, although probably not a great story, really fits the intended audience well, I think. Kids generally are fascinated by dinosaurs. I know I was as a kid. So it's not unusual to see them in kids' cartoons. Also, I understood why you found it odd when... Batman and Martin Steiner were talking to each other to hear the mixed-up voices of Olin Sewell and Adam West, but I wonder how it would have sounded to you if Olin Sewell was still voicing Batman while Adam West voiced Martin Stein. I think that would have been a bit weird as well. The only real criticism I have for Uncle Mixy-Ass is the business of Superman's costume not shrinking or growing with him as it normally did in the comics. As a kid, I assumed, in this sort of situation, the red kryptonite affected the Kryptonian material of the costume in a similar fashion to the way it affected Superman. Even without such an explanation, I think it's needlessly silly to have the suit be absurdly small on Superman once the red K wears off. Finally, slightly off-topic, in response to your note on my feedback that you read at the beginning of the episode, my buddy Doc G was very impressed with your reasoning about how Warp Drive works and would have awarded you extra credit if you'd been in his general English class. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, I thank you, Dave, for your feedback. I really don't have a ton to uh, say with uh, Dave's letter. One thing I want to comment on is uh, Dave's uh, note about my uh, commenting on uh, hearing Olin Sewell talking to Batman. And he wonders how it would have sounded to me if Olin Sewell was still voicing Batman while Adam West voiced Martin Stein. As a kid, I don't know if I would have known Adam West's voice well enough to realize it was Adam West. I mean, sometimes I'll hear a voice in a cartoon and while it may sound familiar, I won't, won't be able to place it immediately. Unless it's someone whose voice I've heard a lot. But so I don't necessarily know that if Adam West were playing the role of Martin Stein, if, you know, listening as a kid, if I would generally recognize that voice, I think the confusion for me was and it wasn't really confusion. just And again, Super Friends was never meant to watch it in the fashion that I watched it pretty much right in a row over the course of, you know, one year instead of like eight. I had become so used to Olin Sewell's voice emerging from that face. And when I say that face, I mean Batman as he was animated from seasons 1 through 8 of Super Friends. When it changed, it was just a little bit jarring. More so than any of the other characters. And I really don't have any comment on what Dave wrote regarding Mi- Uncle mixias Yes It probably is true that the red kryptonite would have affected the kryptonian fabric. I'm not sure why the suit didn't shrink with Superman when he became the super Brat, but I would remind Dave that Firestorm had transmuted the costume to make it fit Superman or Super Brat. So I wonder if uh, maybe maybe Firestorm's transmuting it just took away some of its Kryptonian properties and made it not stretch for Superman. Because as I remember Silver Age comics, the suit stretched with him as he grew. So it doesn't make any sense uh, that it wouldn't stretch with him here. Unless uh, Firestorm did something to the suit's uh, molecular structure. So, and... uh, Thank you to Dr. G. I I would definitely accept that extra credit by reasoning about how warp drive works. I don't remember exactly what I said, but basically, I think I said something to the effect that Star Trek had to generate rules for warp drive and then it had to kind of work according to uh, that fashion. As a way it operated, it needed to uh, remain consistent. So thank you, Dave, for writing in. I have uh, one more letter to address. This one is from Jack Bone, and his subject is Legendary 5 and 6. And Jack writes, Darkseid's Golden Trap. Darkseid inspired the two-parters, doesn't he? You ask why there was a title card for Part 2 after the commercial break rather than just being a single episode long story? I don't know, but a rigid format is a rigid format. I don't know that they ever broke them into individual 11-minute episodes until the DC app, but this way they could. What they would have done with a, dis- a disparate length of Bride of Darkseid, I don't know, but I'd guess chop off the cliffhanger of the first part and graft it onto the cold open for the second. Frank Welker was a great voice for Darkseid, and he gets a particularly good line here. The auctioneer says they would have waited if they knew the apocalypticans were coming and offers to reopen the bidding, but Darkseid says, I have no interest in it. You may proceed. What a wonderful way to get a person to stop apologizing without showing a hint of forgiveness or even acknowledging the other's feelings. So, Vega is the system of ill repuke in the comics? I don't think I would have recognized why they chose that star name until we got the slogan, What Happens on Vega Stays on Vega. On the other hand, I'm willing to bet Max- Beta Maximus was invented for TV. No pun, unintended. I don't know its index in the Star Catalog, but it probably begins with the letter VCR. Island of the Dinosaurs, people keep telling me how dangerous it would be to bring back dinosaurs. (laughs) I say it would still be worth it. Uncle S. Pitalik. Gee, Superboy was such a well-behaved child the first time around. I guess we can blame that on the red kryptonite, too. At the risk of introducing real science into a discussion of kryptonite, there's a saying that those make the poison. Our bodies can handle small amounts of poisonous substances without any apparent ill effect. A small amount of kryptonite, and Superman wouldn't notice it. That's why there's only a no- one known piece of the golden kryptonite in Darkseid's golden trap. Give me a hammer and chisel and we can sell two pieces of gold kryptonite. But we don't know how much we need to take away Superman's powers forever, and there's very little opportunity to experiment. Green kryptonite we've seen take a small amount. Loose or in the comics, or enough dust to coat Luthor green in the episode No Honor Among Thieves, probably a handful. That doesn't stop people from using more than necessary, big rocks or boulders of kryptonite. Say we have a rock of kryptonite four times as big as needed, and it turns Superman into a water bottle. Divided into four smaller chunks, I imagine they would have had the same effect on Superman. But one-fourth, one would turn his insides liquid, one would make his skin plasticky, one shrinks with that to a 16-ounce size, and one makes it so the top of his head can unscrew. And we've got a bad Hair Day joke for that on counter. I'm glad you're enjoying these episodes. You might even leave this series on a high note. Jack. Well, thank you, Jack, for writing in. I really don't have anything to add to, th- to this. The one question I will answer is, uh, Vega is a system of ill- Vega is a system of ill puke in the comics the Vega system is home to all kinds of uh criminals and so yeah that does seem like something that came right out of the comics and uh jack believes uh bringing back dinosaurs will be worth it yeah sure until they eat your loved ones but anytime a dinosaur will eat a moron on a in a Jurassic movie I'm all for it and as far as jack's uh dissertation here on kryptonite and how much it takes and soup turning into a water bottle my head is still spinning so I'm just going to Leave that uh, kind of as it is. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a podcast promo. Then I'm going to come back with the Superman episode, The Big Scoop. Hang around, folks. What? What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking.
3: Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey. I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding, comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called... It all all comes back back to back to Superman. It all comes back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of bailey podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbailey-tude.com.
2: All right. <clears throat> Welcome back, folks. The episodes of this segment... Had an original broadcast date of October 15th, 1988. And we're going to start with The Big Scoop by Michael Reed. And all of our synopsis are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Dr. Glozer has invented a machine he calls the Chronotron that can look one hour into the future.
0: Boy, there sure have been a lot of changes in Smallville in the last few years. Spare us your trips down memory lane, Clark. Let's just get this over with. Gee, Lois, you're not unhappy that Dr. Gloser gave me the exclusive on his new invention, are you? Of course not, Clark. I'm overjoyed that you got what might be the biggest scoop of the century. Well, thanks, Lois. That's nice of you.
1: Clark, I haven't seen you since you were knee-high. How are your parents? Uh, Just fine, Dr. Gloser. Uh, They asked me to say hello. Well, let's get started. This is my greatest invention, the Chronotron. I won't bore you with the technical details. The bottom line is that this device can see one hour into the future.
0: Dr. Gloser, this I've got to see.
1: Very well. The mice take approximately an hour to navigate this maze. Which one will find the cheese, huh? The Chronotron will tell us. Now what? We wait. In an hour, the results will be revealed.
0: Swell. Anybody got a deck of cards?
1: <laughs> you see? Just as the Chronotron predicted. Jeevers! Th- that's amazing!
0: Uh, this could be the greatest scientific breakthrough of the age, Dr. Gloser. I sure hope it doesn't fall into the
2: wrong hands. Reading Clark's article in the Daily Planet... Lex Luthor decides he wants the Chronotron for himself. He sets his goons out to the Kent farm where Clark, Lois, Jimmy, and Dr. Glozer are having dinner together. The goons kidnap the Kent and Dr. Glozer. Lex's men steal the Chronotron while Lex keeps Superman busy saving Jonathan and Martha Kent from a car crash. Toying with the Chronotron, Lex stumbles upon Clark changing into Superman one hour in the future. Lex kidnaps Lois and Clark and uses a planned train disaster to try to force Clark into revealing he's really Superman.
1: I've always had a flair for the dramatic. As you well know, Superman.
0: If Clark's Superman, then I'm Wonder Woman.
1: Uh, thanks, Lois. I think. Come clean, Steel
0: Brains. I saw you change at the racetrack. I. Uh, it's simple. Superman sometimes disguises himself as me if he thinks a crime is going to be committed, and then I get the exclusive. So that's how you do it. Really.
1: Well, if you're not Superman, then this little green stone shouldn't bother you a bit.
0: Feel we? Uh, dizzy? Oh, I've got the flu. Been out of the weather all day. Clark gets stomach aches thinking about food.
1: Whatever. Take a look at this. Who is Superman, really? Find out tomorrow night. You're a real shot in the arm for my network. And you're the star, Clark, baby. You're crazy, Luther. Why should I go along with this? No reason. Except you might want to hang around me long enough to find out what I'm gonna do with that missile. Oh, and just to make sure you can't stop the hijacking... (laughs) Nasty pickle, huh, pal? You can't let that train crash, but you can't save it without revealing your real identity.
2: But Clark uses his seat vision to burst a steam pipe, hiding his disappearance and return from saving the train. Allowing them to leave, Lex uses the Chronotron to time the theft of the rocket fuel to fuel his missile to happen at the same time as the fire which Superman is at. Lex then kidnaps Clark to be on live TV at the same time as the missile launch.
1: Well, in just a few minutes, the world will know the truth when Metropolis Exposed starts. When the show
2: begins, I'm gonna launch the rocket
1: I stole yesterday and the new chronotrons I've built. Once the chronotron satellites are in orbit, I'll be able to see things happening anywhere on Earth an hour beforehand. Of course, you realize that this makes me the most powerful person on Earth. And if you try to stop the launch, you'll expose your secret identity to the world. (laughs) I live for moments like this. And now, it's showtime.
2: However, Clark is really Jonathan Kent in disguise, and while the real Clark disables the missiles of Superman, Lois is meddling destroys the Chronotron, leaving no proof of Lex's involvement.
1: Oh, another minute in that straitjacket and I would have bust wide open.
0: was quite a ride you gave me from here to metropolis yesterday son thanks for impersonating me dad you helped me beat luther's evil scheme son you can always count on us that's what
2: parents are for so that right there is a uh, super jam-packed uh, synopsis for you know a pretty super jam-packed episode There is a lot going on in this episode, and there's quite a bit to unpack here, too. You know, this episode moves very well, and uh, I'm not going to say it's complicated, but the plot moves pretty fast, and it's going to take some pretty good focus for a kid to keep up. It took pretty good focus for me to keep up with this episode. I mean, there are so many moving parts, which is really to the episode's benefit. This is probably one of the best episodes I've watched so far of this show. So the episode starts with Clark returning to Smallville. So again, there's a lot of this is based on the post-crisis version of Superman in which the Kents are still alive in every previous version of the Kents. In every previous version of Superman in comics and TV and any other media I can think of, the Kents were gone by the time he becomes Superman in Metropolis. So this is really a first for TV and it's something that's going to carry over into the Superboy series that that I'm covering as well. So apparently uh, Clark got an exclusive on this new invention, and uh, Lois is uh, quite bitter about that. And this scientist has known Clark since he was a child, and like I mentioned before, this episode establishes that Clark's parents are alive with some dialogue, but we're going to uh, see them in a few minutes. So uh, like this synopsis mentioned, uh, Dr. Glow's invention can see one hour into the future. And it proves its point by showing us that a white mouse will find the cheese in about an hour, and sure enough, it was accurate. Dr. Glowzer put, uh, I think, three mice into the maze, and the Chronotron predicted the correct one. So, uh, you know, we're going to get Clark musing that he hopes this uh, this device doesn't fall into the wrong hands, which pretty much means it's going to fall into the wrong hands. I mean, you know how this goes. We've covered enough episodes, and we've seen enough TV in our lives to know that any kind, some kind of scientific advancement in one of these episodes, it's going to fall into the wrong hands somehow, especially after somebody mentions that it doesn't need to fall into the wrong hands. Anytime you hear someone say, it shouldn't fall into the wrong hands. That is a ironclad guarantee that it will. So Lex Luthor has brought this uh, crappy TV host, uh, Davis's name is, into his office uh, to tell him how much his show sucks. And uh, apparently Davis needs this big scoop to keep himself going. And uh, the Chronotron is going to uh, factor into his big scoop. I initially, I thought the Chronotron was going to uh, be the big scoop, but I don't read the synopses before watching the episode, so. I was quite surprised about the Clark uh, identity stuff. Pleasantly surprised, I will say that. So, the Daily Planet publishes a story about the Kronotron, and Luthor needs to have the machine in his possession, because, hey, what master criminal wouldn't want a machine that can see an hour into the future? So then we go back to Smallville, and the cancer hosting Lois, Jimmy, and Dr. Gloser. Lois comments on the uh, peace and quiet, and, of course, as soon as somebody comments on how peaceful and quiet things are, that is when the peace and quiet gets disrupted. By armed men storming the house as if they're storming the beaches of Normandy. So well, apparently, uh, Clark can't change into Superman here without revealing his identity, and uh, that causes his parents to be and uh, Doctor Glouster to be abducted. For some reason, they leave uh, Clark, Lois, and Jimmy behind. There is a nice bit here where Clark uh, fakes being taken out by the gas so as not to uh, reveal his identity. Everybody uh, succumbs to the gas of Clark who lays there. So once the gas dissipates, and apparently Clark can't change into Superman without revealing who he is. He runs to the chopper, which is more action than you're generally accustomed to seeing Clark can take. But as he's running into the chopper, he trips over a rock. And yes, it's a visual Clark gag that Clark is constantly tripping over things. You know, its clumsiness is one of the ways Clark likes to, especially in the Reeve movies and here, differentiate between himself and Superman. But honestly, I think when Clark is chasing the helicopter that's got his parents, He's in Superman mode, although he's in his civilian clothes. So, if he were running, I don't think this rock would stand a chance up against him. He would just, as he's running, kick this rock and it would shatter him to a million pieces. He wouldn't trip over it. But it provides some comedy, I guess. So, Clark grabs the uh, foot of the helicopter and he uh, eventually falls off into a cloud. And uh, Superman emerges while Lois and Jimmy watch. And it's interesting to one, even wonder here how Clark is going to get out of this because it looks as though Jimmy and uh, Lois saw Clark fall into the cloud and then Superman fly out with no trace of Clark. So we're just going to have to wait and see on that one. So now uh, the men want Glozer to take them to the Chronotron and uh, he's refusing. And uh, here is Superman in all his glory. And these men are shooting ray guns at Superman. I'm guessing the uh, sensors don't allow uh, animated real bullets in a cartoon like this. It's got to be kind of a Star Wars uh, pew-pew ray guns. And uh, with a mighty breath, Super- Superman will blow them all away. So, Kent's have been kidnapped, and Luthor is going to run them into a school bus. And off Superman goes. I don't think at this early stage of the episode, Lex Luthor has any idea who he has in his possession. You know, based on uh, what he's going to find later, I wonder if he regrets giving up the Kents here the way he does. The episode doesn't really touch on that, but it's just one of those things I think about. So Superman saves them by picking the truck over the bus, and uh, they do a very good job of not uh, blowing the fact that they know who's saving them. So this gives Luthor a chance to escape with the Chronotron. And uh, back at the planet, Clark shows up and reveals Superman saved him. So I guess it was easy enough. So now I'm kind of watching, see what's happening here, and uh, Lex is going to use the Chronotron to cheat at horse racing. That wasn't the first thing I would uh, think about, but yeah, why not, I guess. If you can see an hour in the future, you can pick a winner and, you know, hit the trifecta or the exacta. I don't really know my uh, horse racing terms, but I think a superfecta is one of the highest things you can get. If you get all that, you can uh, bring home some pretty serious cash. So maybe uh, Luther's going to do that, at least at first. And he's going to pick the horse named Marvelous Marv. I wonder if that's an, a reference to original New York Met, Marvelous Marv Thronberry. Now, for any of you who know anything about the 1962 uh, New York Mets, there was nothing good or marvelous about them or that team. And even less marvelous was Marvelous Marv. He was, uh, that was just kind of a character that he seemed to have adopted on a team that uh, won only 40 games. But this is not a baseball podcast. This is a Superman show. So we're going to move on uh, right into uh, kind of the crux of the scene here where the machine shows a shirt rip. And that's how Lex Luthor finds out that Clark Kent is Superman. And he's shocked. And he's probably thinking, I had Superman's parents before, but that's not really mentioned. So, uh, while, uh, they're driving off, Lois and Clark are abducted by Luthor in a blimp. Because if you're a master villain, you have a blimp on hand. So this is when Lex uh, challenges Clark on his identity, and, uh, Clark spins a yarn about Superman disguising himself as Clark, which seems wildly ineffective. It's like, Why would Superman have to disguise himself as Clark to see if a crime was going to happen? He can just, you know, if he suspected like a crime was going to happen, say, at the horse race track, he could just hover over the track and uh, high enough to be out of sight and then swoop down when the time is right. He wouldn't need to disguise himself for something like that. And then, in disbelief, Lex Luthor tries to use the kryptonite ring on Clark, who fakes having the flu. And I don't think Lex is buying what Clark is selling, and he shouldn't be, because all of a sudden, Clark, who seems fine a second ago, has the flu, and he pulls out the kryptonite, so I hope no one is buying Clark's act, I mean, obviously, as the viewers, we know he's Superman, but I'm really hoping in this instant Lex is not buying what Clark is selling, especially, and uh, Lois throws uh, Clark's an assist by saying that Clark gets sick just thinking about food, which, okay. So this little sequence here sets up an entire plot where Luthor is going to reveal Superman's secret identity on TV to uh, save his network, and he's going to launch a missile and steal rocket fuel. Luthor's got a lot of stuff going on in this episode. I guess when you have a a device that can see an hour into the future, it makes it easy to plan. So before anything else, I'm going to tell you how Clark got out of that. He uses his heat vision to break a steam pipe and save the train. It's all done very fluidly, and he's back as Clark and the train is safe. So he's able to... uh, Get everything done before this team dissipated, so. And I'm not going to continue to gush over the animation because I've done a lot of that already and I still think it's great. There really hasn't been a step down. There's an issue I'll have later that I'll get to in the next segment, but nothing right now. Everything's going well so far. So there's going to be a building fire in an hour that Luthor will use that to begin phase two of his plan. The theft of the rocket fuel because you can't have a missile without fuel. If you have a missile but no fuel, your missile's not going to go anywhere. So here's a nice shot of Superman saving people trapped on a roof of a building that's on fire by removing the roof. And I love that shot of him flying into the water tower and putting out the fire. He flies through the water tower and the water spits out and uh, the fire is immediately gone. Great animation there. So uh, no one can figure out how Luthor got the rocket and uh, and the fuel. And well, then all of a sudden, Lois remembers that the, the chronotron. Like, did nobody notice that the machine was got stolen beforehand? Is it only now that we're seeing its effects, that people start to think about it. You would think uh, the professor, when he got home, would have freaked out once he saw his machine was gone. Dr. Glozer, his name was. So like I said before, this episode has a lot of moving parts, and it's all working seamlessly. You really have to watch this episode to keep up with uh, Luthor's plot, otherwise you're going to be lost in, in a minute. So during the show, the Davis show, not my show, Davis's show, on the episode, Luthor will launch the rocket and put the Chronotron satellites in orbit. Because he needs to see everything around the world an hour in advance. And Luthor thinks he's got Clark over a barrel. And to the viewer, it probably looks as though he does as well. I mean, there's no Martian Manhunter in these episodes. So Superman really has to uh, think on his feet to get out of the situation. So Perry is not buying that Clark is Superman. And Lois isn't watching. She's uh, at the rocket launch site trying to get to the bottom of that. And I love how Luthor is insulting his girlfriend here. With a big smile on his face, uh, he calls her a cerebral flatline, and uh, she's just uh, overjoyed uh, at his pet name for her and is far too airheaded to realize she's being insulted. But now we're at a point where Lois is going to destroy the Chronotron. I guess one flaw in the Chronotron is that it can't see its own fate an hour in advance. So by now we have Superman flying after the satellites while Clark is on the show. We all know Clark is Superman, so I was definitely kind of wondering what was going on at this point. So S- Superman reacts to being uh, fired on by Kryptonite from the satellites, and uh, these satellites are just kind of shooting the hell out of them. Uh, the sound of the the lasers firing at him sounds very Star Wars-like. And here we are out in space. Superman is turning green upon exposure to Kryptonite, just like in the Silver and Peron I've always liked that effect, Superman turning green uh, when he's suffering from Kryptonite poisoning. It's a very striking image, and uh, the Superboy show will actually adopt that. I don't know if they do it in Season 1, but... I know later on in the show, whenever he's exposed to kryptonite, his face gets a green tint. So Superman manages to uh, destroy the satellite anyway with the sea vision, basically by getting far enough away. And then he goes back to the studio, and here are Superman and Clark Kent on stage together. So Luthor's airheaded girlfriend locked Lois up with the Chronotron, but in destroying it, she uh, destroyed her evidence against Luthor, so I guess it's a win-some-lose-some type of day. And then I love how this ending plays out with Jonathan pretending to uh, be Clark to preserve his secret identity. It is a nice a touch with the girdle to uh, push in uh, Jonathan's stomach so that he's not wider than Clark, and uh, there's even extra lift in his shoes to make him seem taller. Again, the attention to detail, which yeah, to a kid is probably not necessary. Like if, like, to a young kid watching, just Jonathan pulling off the Clark mask is probably enough, but to show the, the extra steps like the girdle and the lifts in the shoes... You know, it shows an acknowledgement that maybe an older kid is watching and saying, wait a minute, he's not built like Superman. How could he have pulled the disguise off? Well, now you know. And it just shows that the Kents will do anything for Clark, which parents will do anything for their children and vice versa. It's a very good family moment for Clark and his parents. So I like that episode very much. The plot moves like a freight train and you really have to pay attention to keep up. And this I like that the kids can't keep up with it. And the script writing was clever enough to keep the adults entertained. Another really good episode of the show. Probably, yeah, that might actually be the best one so far. So we're going to move right on to Overnight with the Scouts by Jerry Wilkinson. And our, this is a Kent family album story, and our synopsis is as follows. Camping out in the woods, Clark and, the, and his scout friends are treated to a ghost story, which sets their imaginations running wild. When Clark hears noises in the night, the boys go exploring and find nothing more than the usual woodland nightlife. So this episode is pretty much uh, what you see is what you get. Kind of like all these other uh, Ken family album stories. This is Clark Overnight with the Cub Scouts. And we're going to learn that Clark doesn't like broccoli. I love broccoli. I'm surprised Clark to- doesn't. So the boys are amused by the ghost story. And uh, they're laughing at the story in the Scoutmaster. Not laughing at the because they think it's funny. They're laughing because they think it's stupid. And Clark here is a bit of an obnoxious brat. Just want to kind of throw that out there. So now it's bedtime, and an owl wakes up Clark. Clark gulps when the boy sends him after what sounds like a wolf. And one of them thinks it's a ghost, but Clark uses his vision powers to uh, detect an owl. And then uh, Clark will get tickled by a snake. Indiana Jones will cry about this for 20 minutes, but not young Clark. He can uh, handle that snake and chuck it to the side like nobody's business. However, it is enough to send the rest of the boys scurrying into the tent. And to be honest, it would probably send me scurrying into the tent as well. We got a raccoon knocking down some pots and pans, and Clark sets it free. This episode is just kind of one thing after another. It's basically a comedy of errors. Not terribly interesting, either. So these scared little boys that take their clubs and beat down a small skillet, so there is that. But it's gonna be hard to have breakfast in the morning when your egg pan is, uh, dented. And then, to make matters worse, their tent collapses, and this incompetent scoutmaster wonders if the sound was made by Bigfoot. <sighs> these last few family album stories have been a step down from the supermarket, and the adoption one. The first two were really good. The last few, not so great. But if you're a young kid, you're probably amused by the boys' antics and the incompetent adult. Me, I was not. All right, so at this point, I'm going to take another break, play another promo. Then when I come back to Superman Story Triple Play and Ken Family Album Story, The Circus. Hang around, folks. R. What's that stand for? Robin...
0: Hello everyone, this is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake.
3: Rob, are you going to take out the trash?
0: Uh, I'm right in the middle of uh, recording an ad for my my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay?
3: Sorry to interrupt, boy wonder time.
0: Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady! Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right, my podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves a Drake. It'll be hosted over at TheBatmanUniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3. And hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with Issue 1 and going all the way to Issue 183. 183 issues. Wow. Well, it's a good thing because everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake. Hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good.
2: All right, welcome back, folks. The episodes of this segment had an original broadcast date of October 22nd, 1988. And we're going to start with the Superman story, Triple Play. This is written by Larry D'Atilio. And both of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com Your number one source for Superman information on the web. The prankster forced Superman to play a macabre baseball games against the kidnapped World Series teams.
3: Well fans,
0: here we are again about to start this year's World Series thanks to Superman... Too bad he's not interested in playing baseball. Well, uh, here we are. It took you long enough. Did I uh, miss anything? No, just Superman. Attaway, kid! What a swat! Clark, did you hear what I said? You missed Superman. Frankly, Lois, there are some things even more exciting than Superman. (laughs) All right! Yeah! All right, what a play!
1: Aw, come on, guys. Let me hear an inning. Have an inning. One pitch? Uh Uh-uh, sorry. No baseball for you for a long, long time. Warden's orders.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's the synopsis. Basically, the lighter notes that you would see in, like, the TV guide or something like that. Very general. It tells you nothing. But fun note about this episode... Back when I covered Super Friends, I kept talking about the death of Superman, the final episode of that show, that I actually remembered. The same kind of goes to this triple play episode, as the one thing looking back before watching the show for this podcast that I remembered about the Ruby Spirit Superman, and bear in mind, before this podcast, I had not seen these episodes since they aired in the late 80s. I remembered Superman playing baseball, and I remembered him bunting for a home run. That's going to happen in this episode. So, let's get into it. So, and I promise I'll get into it more than the synopsis did. Even though this is not, even though I remembered the baseball aspect of it, this is not a great episode. The Prankster is not a favorite villain of mine. I mean, he's okay in a kid's cartoon, but the Prankster is one of those villains that if I never see him again, it's too soon. So, take me out to the ball game as uh, Jimmy and Clark are covering baseball. And apparently, uh, Clark is a great baseball fan. He's calling it a window into the American spirit. So, okay, uh, Clark is definitely uh, into baseball. So, here we go with the prankster. He looks very comic book accurate, very short. And uh, he's got that long uh, mustache that curls in on itself. I don't necessarily want to call it a handlebar mustache because it's not really that thick. But it's very thin. And definitely, uh, you know, he's got a gap teeth. So, it like, looks like he's got three teeth. Two on the top or one on the bottom or vice versa. And uh, right now, the henchmen have a creepy-looking gas and a flower to prank his face on it. It is a very uh, perverted version of something the Joker would do. So baseball practice is going awry here, and uh, Clark uh, blows some dirt up with his breath to cover his exit and change it to Superman. And as Superman arrives, the uh, baseball players, because they have nothing else to do at the moment, do the uh, it's-a-bird-it's-a-plane uh, it's Superman bit. So this really big henchman here takes out this big cannon, and shoot at one of the stadium lights. And this is going to provide the necessary distraction to Superman. That instead of catching the light fixture with his hand. He does so with a batting cage. I'm not necessarily sure the cage would hold a several ton light fixture. But you know what the hell it does here. So we have a nice little extra sequence to start out at the ballpark. And it gets our story going. We already know that the prankster is involved. But it's not giving us any information right away. We still don't necessarily know what he's up to. I mean, you know what he's up to if you listen to me read the one-line synopsis, but if you haven't read that, you don't know what's going on yet. So, uh, Clark discerns that, uh, these are the pranksters' men, and then Lois tells us what the prankster does. He plays pranks on people! His crimes are in the form of pranks! Thank you, Lois! You win the big prize! She points... Thank you for pointing out the obvious. I love how Lois wants to take Clark's story immediately, and, uh, there's a nice little bit of turnaround here. I like this interplay between Clark and Lois.
0: Nice scoop, Kent. Who are these guys? What were they doing there? Got any ideas, Kent? Well, Mr. Scoop? From the way they were dressed and the equipment they used, I'd say they were some of the prankster's men. The prankster? That clown's crazy. He uses pranks to pull off his loony crimes. If that mental case is planning something at the World Series, we'd better find that out, pronto. I'll get right on it, Chief. No, it's Kent's story. But... Uh, I'll cover the opening of the Cook Gallery at the City Museum. I don't mind. Clark Kent, you're a peach. <clears throat> Besides, Judge Cook's machine art collection is one of the finest in the country. Judge Cook? Isn't he... Ah, uh, the judge who sent the prankster to prison. The prankster vowed to get even, and the machine art exhibit just might appeal to his warped sense of humor. Uh, but it's just a hunch. Uh, come on, Jimmy. Clark can't you
2: Lois wants to grab Clark's story about On the prankster but Perry says Oh hold on down girl That's Ken's story And she uh, sulks for a minute until Clark says she can have it He wants to cover this uh, Art exhibit and then it turns out That being featured is the work Of the artwork of the judge Who sent prankster to jail so I like Clark turning the tables on Lois. We don't really see it often enough, and uh, usually Clark uh, lets Lois kind of run roughshod over him, but she tried to take his story, and he appeared to let her, and then told her, nope, I've got this angle covered, and uh, puts her out a little bit, and uh, I really like that. But now we have a hostage situation at the museum, and uh, Clark goes to change Superman, and we got a pretty good shirt rip. At least, it would have been a pretty good shirt rip if the colorist didn't botch the animation and invert the colors on the S. The negative space, which is generally yellow, was red, and the S itself was yellow. I don't understand how that happens. I mean, I know everybody's human and mistakes happen, but seriously? How does that get through? How many people look at this thing before it goes to broadcast? You'd think enough to notice that uh, Superman's S is colored wrong. And Superman's S is one of the most recognized symbols in the world. How do you miscolor it? And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there wasn't any way to fix that in time. So it's one of those things that we just pretty much have to live with. So we have silly villains, and uh, Superman plants barrels on their head and knocks them out. And then we have a bunch of people tied up in the art exhibit. So there's the uh, prankster on roller skates, and he's putting uh, Judge Cook in a machine when Superman shows up. And like I said, the prankster is not a favorite villain. He seems awfully silly for a Superman villain. And, uh, we're going to get more side gags here as the prankster uses a, a machine as a pitching machine to uh, send Superman through a wall. And it looks like it hit him with a sandbag, which I guess it, it would—I guess it will generate enough force to at least knock him off his feet. Not enough to seriously hurt him, but enough to uh, make him notice, I guess. So Superman uh, saved the judge and uh, off he goes. And Superman should literally handle this guy in seconds. An idiot like the prankster is so below Superman that it's not even funny. Unless, of course, the Man of Steel just stands there to get hit with a steel-enforced peanut butter. Ugh, <sighs> please. This show does get Lois down to a though, as she just kind of walks through a police, uh, police line. Good old Lois Lane, getting the story by any and all means necessary. And then, uh, Prank car spread her wings and flew because, of course, it did. So here's a Batman reference as uh, the Metropolis Metro's are playing the uh, Gotham Goliath in the World Series. And uh, when Superman uh, landed at the World Series, one of the pitchers looked a lot like Dennis Eckersley, uh, one of the top pitchers for the Oakland A's at the time. So the prankster is going to steal the World Series. You can't steal a baseball game. You can abduct the players while Superman stands there scratching his trunks, but you cannot actually steal the game. Got it? Got it? Good. But so we're going to find out that it turns out he didn't steal the World Series. So Superman tracks the prankster to this island, as I'm getting started aboard bored with this episode and this is where we learned that the prankster loves baseball and because he was arrested he couldn't watch baseball so he's going to kill the judge this is a very uh, rational uh, explanation for
0: alright prankster what do you want what do I want you know I really love baseball
1: (laughs) but when judgey here put me away I couldn't go to any more games but there's more Lane wrote the story which got me arrested, and Olsen took the photos, so I don't like them much either.
0: Superman! Thank goodness. Help us.
1: Prankster, you're insane. Uh-uh, Soupy. I wouldn't try to rescue them just yet. Just a twitch of my fingers, and those skyrockets go boom. And so do your friends! So what do I want? My very own private world series. The Metros and the Goliaths will play against those machines I stole and gimmicked up. They're going to be my prankster team. And now for the real fun, stupid man. You are its pitcher. You're crazier than I thought. And there's more. If my team loses, your friends here become instant fireworks. But if we win, they'll go to judge. No matter who loses, I win. And no matter who
0: wins, you lose! For the moment, I've got to play his game. But as soon as I see my chance...
2: And plus, he's got a rocket ship. And because he was arrested, he couldn't watch baseball, so he's going to kill the judge. Very rational. And Lois wrote the story on him being arrested, and Jimmy took the photos, so that also gets him strapped to a bomb as well. I guess there's no arresting officer, because, uh, because he's the only one not strapped to a rocket. So we're going to have a baseball game here between the players and the pranksters' robots. If Prankster loses, the, the uh, captives are dead, and if he wins, they get judged. Not necessarily the best of choices for Superman, as it's pretty much a lose-lose proposition for him. So, according to the established rules, Superman is going to pitch for, for the pranksters' team, the robots. It's not going very well for anyone, as vines and coconuts and eagles are bedeviling the human players. Superman's not a very good hitter, because when he swings... Uh, He uh, destroys the ball. You know, if you swing the bat and uh, the ball explodes and doesn't go anywhere, I'm not necessarily sure what the ruling on that is. And I had mentioned before that uh, I did remember this episode, and probably helps that I'm a pretty big baseball fan, and and I was back then too, so it makes sense uh, that I remember this episode. So here we go, Superman needs to hit a homer to uh, make the robots win, and Superman bunted for a home run, and the ricochets kind of knock everyone down, and it knocks the Rocket controller out of the prankster's hand, and a little bit of heat vision solves that problem, at least for now. And that so that just brings the prankster out with a machine firing back to Superman, who responds by throwing a ton of baseballs at it, which has no effect. Superman kind of bats to return baseballs and uh, kind of gets gloved for a moment while the players uh, free the prisoners. So we got teamwork here. Superman is taken a beaten from this giant uh, baseball machine, and the players are climbing the uh, stuff and uh, rescuing the people. Good. They all know what teamwork is. So this episode now borders on the ridiculous The so Superman throws a projectile bat at the machine and uh, destroys it. I guess he could just use the seed vision. And now, instead of chasing the Toy Man, Superman hits the ball at Prankster and knocks him out, apparently into the pant of an oncoming shark. So then Superman grabs Prankster from the shark, but couldn't he have just done that anyway without the theatrics? I mean, he went in to catch the Prankster and to save him from being eaten by a shark, I guess uh, seeing Superman hit a baseball at Prankster was funnier, but not as efficient. So, to everyone's joy, Superman returns the Prankster to the island, and the World Series is back to Metropolis, and uh, Clark gets to geek out over the baseball action. So, not a very good episode. Despite it being memorable for seven-year-old Mike, I guess Superman playing baseball, which isn't something you see very often, was pretty memorable. I remembered much more of the Super Friends episode than this one, and having watched it, I can see why. Not a very good episode. In a few years from this, this episode's writer would do a few episodes of Babylon 5, which is my all-time favorite TV show. And I guess for that reason, I expected better of Larry Dettilio, especially since he wrote some pretty good episodes of that show. But kind of a dud here on Ruby Spears Superman. So let's move right on to the Kent Family Album story, The Circus. And this is written by Meg McLaughlin. And our one-sentence synopsis is as follows. Clark accidentally becomes part of his first circus. Yep, yeah, that's pretty much it. So, here we go, Clark and the circus. We start with the whole family posing in a cutout of uh, weightlifting family. The There's uh, a daddy weightlifter, a mommy weightlifter, and a kitty weightlifter, and everybody sticks their head into the appropriate uh, head hole, and we have a family portrait. A very weird one, but a family portrait nonetheless. So, they can't send Clark to get concessions. I don't know how old Clark is supposed to be here, but Sending this kid by himself to guess concessions does not sound like a very good idea. Sending any child by themselves at the circus or anywhere else, any kind of arena, is not a good idea. But I guess back then it was okay. So Clark is intrigued by uh, the lady spider here. And he isn't impressed until the woman appears to be a spider with a human head. And uh, thinking the woman was a monster, Clark uses his super breath to blow her away. And that reveals her legs. That's one illusion that Clark has shattered for not only himself, but everyone else. So then Clark is uh, waylaid by an elephant. His parents wonder why he hasn't backed with the sodas yet. Maybe if they had gone with him, they'd know that. They'd know where he is with the sodas. Maybe Jonathan could be carrying the sodas instead of Clark carrying him around through all the misadventures that he's having here. So it seems like Clark has run up backstage somehow, and he trips and rescues the drink, and he is also concerned by about his whirly, which is basically a pinwheel. And then when he bends down, he uh, split a seam at the bottom of his pants. Mock Kent should have told him that there'd be days like this. So he uh, grabs a costume and he gets sucked into the uh, high wire act. All the while, he's still holding his sores. So Clark calls them all to fall and he catches them. And I'm impressed he can do this without spilling his drinks. I have a hard enough time walking across the room without losing drinks. So Clark makes the excuse that there was a really long line to explain his absence and nobody notices his extracurricular activity. Another neutral Kent album story. It's just Clark getting into mischief. Which all could have been avoided if the kids had been better parents. So, But I guess they've never done anything with a kid like that. We have to forgive them their foibles. So that's pretty much all of that. Next time, we'll go back to Superboy with the episodes Back to Oblivion and The Russian Exchange Student. Till then, you can leave feedback. It's always welcome. Man at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Mana Screencast. Till next time, folks. We're all on the same team. Good night. The Manascreen Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyrighted their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com Emails to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com and you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.